Hello again. Good to see you all this morning. And uh, this morning we're continuing in our study of uh, 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 4. And um, an important passage. Uh, I have lots of favorite passages. This is one of my, one of my favorites as well. It, um, as we mentioned during the time of communion, um, we'll start with this, that uh, we are to apply the principles of physical fitness to spiritual fitness we see many, many passages in the New Testament that talk about um, and use as a metaphor the principles of athletics applied to our Christian life. So apply the principles of physical fitness to spiritual fitness. Yes, there we go. Um, I was looking at the different verses in the New Testament, found somewhere between 16 and 20 passages that deal with uh, running the race, boxing, fighting the fight, getting the crown. Um, it's it's um, uh, very, very common in the New Testament. And um, so it, what, we, what we're going to see this morning is that uh, we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And we can take these uh, illustrations in life, <clears throat> in athletics and in, in physical fitness, and ply, apply them directly to the life of walking with Christ. You know, I've mentioned many times before um, that I like to run. Have I mentioned that I like to run? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And, and I do like to run because uh, I like it for physical fitness and mental fitness and spiritual fitness as well, something that I really enjoy doing. But a couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to start swimming and add that to my regimen of, uh, of staying fit. And um, yeah, I could swim. Um, I was in the Navy. Did I mention I was in the Navy? Yeah. And um, obviously in the Navy, I had to pass some pretty stringent qualifications for uh, swimming. And serving with the Marines was even weirder. Uh, one time I had to swim 100, yard, 100 meters rather, in full combat gear. That means with a flak and Kevlar in a pack, boots and utes and a weapon and everything. Uh, it's really not that hard. There's a trick to it. But anyway, um, really, yeah, but anyway. Uh, but that's all survival stuff. But I wanted to add to my regimen swimming. And, you know, you can only do the side stroke so much. You have to get your face in the water, and you have to learn to, uh, to do the Australian crawl or the freestyle. And I just could not do the breathing portion of it. And so my wife came to my rescue, and, which is fitting because she used to be a lifeguard. And so she came to rescue me, and she not only was a lifeguard, but she also was a swim instructor, and she taught children how to swim. And so she got in the water with me, and she says, Ben, can you blow bubbles? Because it's like a little kid. That's where you start. You've got to put your face in the water and blow bubbles and learn how to breathe in the water. And she told me how to do that, and she would watch me swim. And she no, 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 it's not like that, and, and over and over again. And she, she just told me to keep practicing, and she showed me over and over and over again. And I watched lots of YouTube videos as well. Finally, I just learned that I had to keep my face in the water. I had to just keep going. I just had to concentrate and keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. And in time, it clicked. And when you discipline yourself, then you have the freedom to do, I have the freedom now to swim a mile. 
Whereas I, could, I would swim one length of the pool and I'd be out of breath and I thought I was really going to drown. And then I would take forever to go back the other way. And now I've got the freedom to swim and to do that as a, a regimen of physical fitness. But Paul compares this kind of thing to the Christian life. When you keep your face in the water, when you learn to breathe and to stroke and to kick, and you do it properly, when you learn your, your running stride, when you learn how to to, to bat properly and throw a football and to catch and to tackle, all those things, and you practice it over and over and over again, he compares this to our life of godliness, spiritual fitness, easily understandable illustrations. We understand it because athletics are a big part of our, of our culture, and athletics were a big part of the culture in Ephesus and in that Roman Greco empire, they knew the games from which the Olympics came from. And that's why there are so many passages in the New Testament that talk about athletics and apply them to the Christian life. Our spiritual fitness, however, is vastly superior to any physical fitness, and that's what he's going to get across to us today. So, if you have your Bibles, let's read the passage, shall we? It is First uh, Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Um, Let us give attention to the reading of God's word, and so I encourage you to stand as we read God's word this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4, reading verses 6 through 10, the word of God. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Would you please be seated? Father, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our feet. And we thank you, Lord, that as Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We do seek to be godly men and women. We pray that you would use the word of God to make us so. We humble ourselves before you and put ourselves to the task. In Jesus' name, amen. As we just read this passage, Paul is speaking directly to Timothy. And we are going to apply it to ourselves. He's telling him certain things as this um, young man that he's discipling and mentored. He's, he's sent to this city to make things right. And he's telling him important things that he needs to know. And it's for us to apply these as well. And the first truth I want you to see is this in verse 6 is that you should nourish yourself with God's truth. Nourish yourself with God's truth. For that's what he says to Timothy. He says, in pointing these things out to the brethren and the things that he's talking about, remember last week we saw the false teachers who were inspired by evil spirits, were teaching doctrines of demons, of legalism and asceticism. And Paul says, 
you need to point these out to the brethren. In other words, the church, the, the, the family of God. He's, he's using that familial language again. Remember, the, the key passage in the book is, uh, I write these things so one will know how he should conduct himself in the family of God, the household of God. And now he uses the, the term once again, you need to instruct the brethren, not the false teachers, not the leaders of the church, but you need to teach the people in the church and, and when you do that, you need to, to teach them that whereas false teachers were the channels of these doctrines of demons, a good servant of Christ Jesus is to be a channel of the truth. So a good servant of Christ Jesus warns of apostasy. In pointing out these things to the brethren, he says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant here is the word deacon. We looked at that in chapter 3, the, the qualifications of elders and deacons. And remember the word, diakonos, means a servant. And we are all to be servants of the living God, servants of the Most High God. And he's telling Timothy, you will be a good servant if you do these things. That's an honorific title. Each and every one of us, I think, should, should seek to be considered a good servant of Christ Jesus. And one of the things a good servant does is warns others of apostasy, the falling away. In later times, some will apostatize, some will fall away from the faith, listening to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and we need to warn one another. Also, a good servant of Christ feeds on the words of Christ, feeds on God's word. He says, in pointing these things out, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith, and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. Servant of Christ Jesus, if you're following Christ, your life must be nourished by the words of truth. And the, the word of the faith is the word of the gospel, and sound doctrine is all the doctrines that the gospel entails. And a good servant of Christ Jesus practices God's word. He says, you're constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Timothy wasn't just learning a bunch of theology and a bunch of stuff. He was following the word of God and he was living it like Ezra. He put himself to the task to, to study the word and to, to live it and to teach others as well. And notice the natural order of things that happens. Notice the natural order of things. You closely follow the word. You're continually being nourished by the word. And then you teach the truth of the word. Practice what you preach. Practice what you know. Practice what you are learning. But it starts with following it and teaching it or, and being nourished by it. And then you get to the point that you can teach others. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve. Christ and Christ alone. Colossians 3.24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You don't serve a boss. You don't serve a president. You don't serve a teacher. You don't serve a commanding officer. Yes, you do in a sense, but ultimately we serve Christ by, and we serve Christ by serving those whom he has placed over us. But ultimately, we always have to get that right. We are serving Christ and Christ alone because he is the Lord Christ. He is over all things. 
But here's the most important lesson I want you to, to grasp onto in, from verse 6. And it is this. Just as yesterday's food is not sufficient to sustain you, neither is yesterday's word. Jesus is the bread of life. We need daily bread, yes, daily sustenance, but we need the daily nourishment. He said, Timothy, you are a good servant of Christ Jesus because you are constantly, you are being nourished on a continual basis by the words of faith and the sound doctrine. I mean, how many of you say, I ate on Wednesday, I'm good for the week. But we will say, well, I ate on Sunday because I went to church and that's all I need. I read my Bible on Monday, and that's enough. We are to be constantly nourished. And in the same way, if you're talking about spiritual fitness and physical fitness, if you're, if you're into physical fitness, you don't just eat one day a week. You eat nourishing food, and you eat good food, and you eat it consistently, and you don't overeat, and you don't undereat. You, eat, you do so properly, and such is the Christian life constantly nourished you don't take vitamins and minerals and and just all of a sudden feel better uh, one of the f- things that i like to do and, and i guess i as i get an old as I get older i do more of these old man jokes but anyway well in in costco you get to the place where they hand you the liquid vitamins and all that stuff you know that portion you know yeah i always like to take and go oh i feel better already and <laughs> the point is made you don't feel better already. You don't feel good just because you took a vitamin that morning or because you ate breakfast. It's, you know, spiritual health is consistent nourishment day to day, week to week, year to year. And yesterday's word is not enough. Yesterday's bread is stale. Yesterday's food and last week's food, it's not enough. A spiritual diet must consist of daily nourishment and it has to be on a consistent basis. So, brethren, brothers and sisters, nourish yourself with God's truth. The main body of what we're going to look at is in verses 7 through 8. And he moves on from this idea of nourishment, but, it, but they're related because notice, you know, you know nourishment is the idea of, of, of good health but then we're going to see in verses 7 through 8 that, we are to, that you should train yourself, discipline yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Verse 7, he says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. There's quite a statement, huh? In contrast to this nourishment, he says have nothing to do with worldly fables, and the worldly fables were the things that the false teachers were saying. He's not disparaging women, and he's not disparaging women of age. This was a a common um, polemic debate, in, in debate polemics or making argument against something, and it was used of an argument that you would just summarily dismiss because of its ridiculousness. It's like a bunch of old men arguing about the weather or a bunch of older women arguing about whatever, gossiping. He's saying, reject it. Have nothing to do with it. So he says, reject 
false godliness. Have nothing to do with it. That's really a pretty mild way of putting it. It should be reject these things. Rejecting what things? Reject these things where, where, where people are saying, well, um, you must... You, you can't be married and you can't eat certain foods. It was legalism, it was asceticism. And, and what Timothy is saying is that this, this, uh, this is something that's fit only for old women. It was a title of derision. It was a, the dismissal of an argument when you were just saying, I'm not going to have any of it. It doesn't make any sense at all. To Timothy, he says, don't spend your time on things that are useless. They're myths. They're godless. They're profane. Godless myths. Godless myths, old wives' tales. Myths fit uh, for the godless and the gullible. That's some of the ways that this is, is, is referred to. But the point that he's making to, to Timothy is, don't even deal with it. It's not worth your time. Reject spiritual junk food. Instead, we are to be constantly nourished on the truth. Kent Hughes says this about this portion and what it means with the false teachers and their teaching about marriage and food. In the first, in, in chapter one, where Timothy was told to tell the false teachers to stop teaching the law because they were teaching all these endless genealogies and, and endless speculation, Kent Hughes says this, the primitive history of the Old Testament was overlaid with ridiculous legends. Its genealogies were given absurd symbolisms. And then it was sugar-coated with demon-inspired asceticism that promised spiritual superiority through sexual and dietary abstinence, junk teaching. Reject it, says Paul. It's junk. Don't give it the time of day. How do you know when to reject something like that? When you know the truth, when you're constantly nourished, when you know sound doctrine, and you hear these kinds of things, you just, it's not worth my time. And there's a lot of junk teaching out there, ladies and gentlemen, on the internet, on television, on the radio. It's out there. Be careful. So it's important for you to know the word of God and to be constantly nourished, to be taught, to be healthy in God's word. So when junk teaching comes up, you know what it is. We have good music at Valley Bible Church. I appreciate that song during communion summer. Thank you. And um, some, of the, some of the most common songs, if you listen to Christian radio, come out of a place called Bethel. And I, I just want to say this very briefly because we do not use Bethel music because of the doctrine of the, the church and the school. And it's just, some of it's just remarkably bad. And so some of the songs are remarkably bad. So we, we just don't use them. And one of the things I saw coming, coming out of Bethel this week was they were uh, talking about how in their services, angel feathers were coming down. I'm not going to spend any more time with it. It's just, you know, I mean, people are going, yeah, whatever that is. It's not real. It's not happening. They don't have any evidence. There's no angels. They're not keeping them. No, there are no feathers that they're uh, using as proof. And that's the kind of stuff that people go, whoa, that's amazing. For what purpose? What does it get you? 
So be careful of the junk teaching that is out there, the junk spiritual food, and be spiritually nourished by the truth so you, when you see false teaching, you know it immediately, and like he says to, to, to Timothy, don't have anything to do with it. It's their myths. There's no basis in fact. And that's the exact kind of teaching that was happening with, um, uh, with Timothy. Instead, reject this false teaching, but pursue true godliness. False godliness is, is keeping all these rules. False godliness is listening to crazy stories and then being on the know. True godliness comes only from God. And godliness, let's just define it. We've talked about it numerous times. Godliness is very simple. It is the outworking of your faith. It is what you believe and then how you live what you believe. It is really practicing what you believe, practicing what you preach. So godliness is that outworking of how we live our lives. Here's the thing. The word godliness is used 15 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are in 1 Timothy. 13 of those times are in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But nine of the times, nine of the 15 that the word godliness appears, appears in 1 Timothy. Timothy's making a, Paul is making a point to Timothy. This is how one is to conduct himself from the household of God. Great is the mystery of godliness. That conduct is, is godliness. He's telling them this is what godliness really looks like. Not a godliness of legalism, but a godliness that comes from God from the source. And the word, when he says, train yourself or discipline yourself, is the word from which we get the word gymnasium. And the root word of gymnasium is the word naked. That's what the, the root word of gymnasium is. The, the Greek word is, 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 is naked because they, they knew what a gymnasium was in their time because they knew about the games and they knew about boxing and running and sports and wrestling and all of these things. And when they competed, we've talked about this before, they did so naked. And so therefore, they were the naked games and uh, they would, they would, that's how they would, uh, they would compete. They would run without any clothes on. They would wrestle without any clothes on. They would box without any clothes on. Why? So they wouldn't be encumbered by anything. Now we have spandex. But anyway. <laughs> so gymnasium came to mean discipline. Because that's the place you went to train, was the gymnasium, where you trained and you trained and you trained. And so it came to mean discipline. So he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Athletes discipline themselves. It's an athletic term, gymnasium, for the purpose of godliness. We just had the Super Bowl, and Kansas City Chiefs won. Patrick Mahomes is, did you know Patrick Mahomes is a pretty good quarterback, right? Did you? What's that? <laughs> Okay, do you know that, that Patrick McCombs only plays football on Sundays? One day a week. People are looking at me like, ah, that's a trick. It, no, he plays football 24-7. He lives football. He eats football. He dreams about it. He talks about it. He, he, he breathes it. He studies it. He trains for it. It's his life. And that's what elite athletes do. 
they don't just play football on Sundays in the team. They, they, their whole year is devoted to training for a game. They don't just play on Sundays. They spend time with films. And even when they come to practice, every time they practice, they don't just start um, throwing, doing plays and, and throwing the ball and tackling each other. They start off with the fundamentals, with sprints and agility drills and, and uh, throwing and passing and catching before they ever do any plays. They have to discipline themselves. They have to train themselves for the game. So they don't just play on Sundays. But many Christians do. They play at godliness one day a week. They watch football on Sundays, but before they do that, they play at godliness. And the point that Paul is making is that athletes don't just compete, they train to compete. And as they train, they get better and better and better people will take so seriously competing in athletics. But how much more important is it to be training to become a godly person? The passage we read this morning in Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, in other words, taking off the garments that are going to keep us from running faster, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary in your race, that you will not lose heart, but that you will run with endurance because God has put you in a race, a spiritual race that is just for you. So discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The benefits of physical fitness are many, but they do not last. The benefits of physical fitness are many, but they do not last. In verse 8, he says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. He doesn't say uh, fitness is of no pro pro uh, profit. He doesn't say we don't, we don't have to worry about health and fitness. He just says it's of little profit, Compared to, compared to spiritual fitness and godliness is something that will last forever. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to make sure you understand that the benefits of physical fitness, they are many and it's good. It's a good thing to take care of yourself and I try and do that. But we need to be careful because our culture worships, literally worships, youth and beauty and fitness. There is a danger of idolatry in the whole fitness culture. Did I mention I like to run? No, yeah, yeah. There's a snare there for all of us. It is folly to put your trust in your appearance, your fitness, your health, your beauty, the fact that you're handsome or strong or tall or whatever it may be. It will not last. 
they have last, unlasting value. Be careful of that idolatry because you may be beautiful, you may be handsome, you may be healthy, you may be fit, but one day you will not. And then what? Momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are unseen. As we, we are changed into the likeness of Christ and the inner man is renewed as we become, we become more and more like him as our outer man is decaying. And so we must be careful that we do not put our hope in fitness. Stay healthy, exercise, eat right, yes, but make sure you got it right. The second part of verse 8 says this, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness benefits us in every situation of life now and for eternity. Physical fitness is not going to benefit you in eternity. But godliness will benefit you now but it will also benefit you in eternity. There will be a reward. There's a crown. Run the race. Stand before him. And here's the thing. You can never go wrong with godliness. In any situation that you are placed, you can never go wrong with doing the right thing before God. And you will never regret choosing godliness over pragmatism. Because most oftentimes we get in a tough situation and we make, we, we compromise our values of godliness just this one time. And it's usually about money. But you will never regret doing the right thing in the moment, no matter how hard it is. Godliness, once you discipline yourself for it, it will serve you well. And God will help you through whatever mire you are in. True godliness comes from the word of truth. That's where we, we re- recognize where it comes from. It doesn't come from our discipline. It comes from the word of truth. Remember what Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. We are made righteous, we are made holy, we are made godly by the word of God. And simple disciplines are the means of grace by which God makes us godly. We call these the means of grace. God's word. There are lots of books written on spiritual disciplines. And there are these, and then there's fasting, and there's silence, and then there's simplicity, and all sorts of things that people over the years have picked up as as, uh, spiritual disciplines. But these are the main ones that the scriptures speak of. The word of God. To read, to study, to meditate, to memorize, to digest, to live. Prayer. Prayer is life. Prayer is dependence upon God. You cannot live the Christian life without prayer. Prayer is that is when you come to God and you say, God, I am inadequate. I cannot do what needs to be done. There are things that need to happen that I cannot do. Only you can do these and my hope and my dependence is on you and you alone. Please help me. Prayer is life. 
worship is job one. When we come on Sunday mornings, we have Sunday school classes and we have cookies and, and fellowship and we have all sorts of things going on. But the most important thing that we do on Sunday mornings is what happens in this room when we sit in rows and we look forward and we sing to the Lord and to one another and we hear the word of God and we, we say the amen. Worship, we're called to be worshipers above all else. And fellowship. Fellowship is essential to live the Christian life because it's a team sport. We do this together. You cannot do this alone. You've tried and you've failed. I know many of you have, but you cannot do the Christian life alone. And of course, service. He made you and gifted you, and when we serve him, it sharpens us, it gives us purpose, and we give glory to him because we're doing the very thing that we are made to do and gifted to do. I like to look at it this way. When we... When we discipline ourselves with these things, when we, we, we just put them into our lives, here's the thing, it's, it's not your discipline that makes you godly. When the word of God is there, when you're praying, when you're worshiping, when you're fellowshipping, when you're serving, these are all contact points of the Holy Spirit in your soul. There's something in there that he can work with. If you're not nourished by the word of God, if you're not praying, he goes, I'm waiting, I'm ready. But when you're in the word of God and you're worshiping and fellowshipping and when you're praying and you're practicing the spiritual disciplines, the spirit of God has those, that, that surface area and contact points in your life. I've got something to work with in this man, in this woman. And that's where he is the one who produces godliness in us. But it's up to us to practice the discipline. Nourish yourself with God's truth. Train yourself, discipline yourself for godliness. And then in verses 9 and 10, labor together for the gospel. Labor together for the gospel. Notice the the change in pronouns. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance for it is for this we labor together. Up to this point, he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to do this. Timothy, you need to be a good servant. You need to nourish yourself. You need to discipline yourself. And now he says, this is an important thing. This is an important statement. It's hard to know whether he's looking back or looking forward. I think he's looking forward. This is the important thing I'm trying to say to you. We are all laboring together for the gospel. We're striving. It is hard work. For this, we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all. Here's the thing. Christian life is not going to be easy. If somebody tells you, hey, just trust Christ as savior and then he's going to answer all your prayers and you're going to have angel feathers coming down and life will be great. It doesn't work that way, right? Those of you who have been Christians for a long time, the Christian life is not easy. It's full of joy and it's full of God lifting you up and taking you and and answering prayers, there are those good things. But to say that it is easy is a misnomer. The Christian life is not without effort, but we work according to his provision, we work according to his promises, 
and we work according to his power. The Christian life is not let go and let God. That's called Keswick theology, and Keswick theology was indeed that. You need to reach this this state in your walk with God where you just kind of let go of things and allow God to work. I don't know how you do that. I mean, I just don't know what you do. That's not what the Bible says. This word where he says, it is for this we labor and strive. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like labor and strife. And indeed it is. In fact, this word labor is used over 20 times in the New Testament talking about the Christian life. He is not saying this is salvation by works or sanctification by works. This is not salvation by legalism. Legalism, of course, we saw last week, if you don't do these things and you don't do these things, God will accept you. That's legalism. The motivation is legalism is this. I'm doing this for myself. If I, I'm just, I'm going to read my Bible seven days a week and I'm going to pray 30 days a, week, a day, 30 hours a day, 30, yeah, 30 minutes a day, seven days a week, 30 minutes a day, and God will accept me. God will accept my godliness. No, you see, the ba- it's backwards. The motivation is I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to read my word for his godliness, for his glory, for him to work that godliness in me. I'm just going to give him the contact points. I'm going to give him the surface area. I'm going to give him something to work with, my love and my obedience and my worship and my heart so that he can work those things through me. And sometimes... Discipline means saying no, gutting it up. Self-control, fruit of the Spirit. Saying no to something and saying yes to something else. But for this, we work, he says, and we strive. It's the word agony. Christian life is not easy. There's this agonizo. This is a, uh, an Olympic year, and the Summer Olympics are coming, and pretty soon we'll, you'll hear the dun, 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 dun. You get, it's going to be on, the, on TV pretty soon. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. You've heard that before, right? It's wrong. There is the thrill of victory, but there is an agony that precedes the thrill of victory. The agony of training. That's why he says we are to labor and to agonize in disciplining ourselves for the hope where we have placed ourselves uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories about a runner, did I mention I like to run? Anyway, Glenn Cunningham was uh, an Olympic athlete in the early 1900s in America when he was eight years old, he was involved in a fire that his brother died in. It was his brother's fault, but he, all of the, the glens, all the flesh from the knees down uh, on his legs was, was gone. He lost all of the toes on his left foot. The doctors wanted to amputate both, both legs, but uh, Glenn was so distraught that the parents talked the, the doctors into keeping his legs, but they said, okay, but he may not survive, and he will never walk, and if he ever does walk, he's not going to walk normally. He was eight years old. It wasn't until he was 10 years old that he walked for the first time after that. 
And then, for some reason, he decided he wanted to run. And he ran. And he ran. And he ran. And he became an Olympic athlete. It was some agony. It was some, some agony in training to become an Olympic athlete through all of that adversity. But he was a believer, and this was his life verse. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with, like, with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That verse had a lot of significance for him. Physically and spiritually, it was God who got him through that. Colossians 1.28 We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ's discipleship. For this purpose also I labor agonizing according to his power. According to whose power? His power, which mightily works within us. Two final lessons here. Our growth in godliness is an ongoing process. He says, discipline yourself, keep nourishing. For this we labor and strive we have fixed our hope on God. It's an ongoing process. You don't swim one length of the pool and say, I'm done. You don't eat one meal a week. You don't run 500 yards and say, I've done all my physical fitness for the year. It's a process. It is ongoing, like swimming, like running. And it's not fair because the older you get, the harder it gets. But you've got to keep it up. And the Christian life is that way. You cannot give up. You must keep your face in the water and keep going with Christ. It's a lifetime process. And our mission, finally, is the gospel of salvation to all who believe. We labor together for the mission of the gospel. We do this together and we fix our eyes on Christ because he is the author and perfecter of our faith, but he is the living God and he is the savior of all men. Remember what that means. We saw this back in chapter two. He's not saying that everybody is saved, but the false teachers were saying, no, salvation is only for some Jews. No, he says, salvation is for black and white and brown and male and female and those who speak French and Guyana and those who speak Spanish and English and whatever is for all people. But it is for those who believe. And that is what we give ourselves to in striving for godliness. Now, in conclusion, a couple of weeks ago I spoke to the men at the men's breakfast and I want to tell you what I told them because I think it, it is helpful to all of us. About this godliness thing. Godliness is your character. God, godliness becomes who you are. It's how you live your life, how you live your faith. And godliness is our, our greatest personal asset. It's not your training. It's not your money. It's not your intelligence. Not your IQ. Not your experience. It's not your education. 
And so for us as a church, you know what our greatest asset is? It's not our building, it's not our budget, it's not how much money we raise, it's not our programs. It is us living out godliness. That's what counts. That is what is going to last into eternity is that we live lives of godliness. And here's the thing. Anyone can excel at godliness. I don't have anything over you because I went to seminary. I was in the Navy. Did I mention I was in the Navy? I don't have anything over you because of my experience. Some of you are more godly than I. I will never be as godly as many of you. And there isn't any person in this room that cannot excel at godliness. And you can do that today. Through the word, prayer, worship, fellowship, and service. Thank you, Father, for a word that is true and apt and timely. Change us into the likeness of Christ. Make us godly for your sake. Lord, help us to find that proper understanding of when we leave off of ourselves and lay hold of you. May we do that to your glory. And may godliness be that which is known of Valley Bible Church. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.